I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, the podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detlaff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies. And I'm, oh boy, I had a whole week to think about, think about an extra thing to tack onto the identity. You know, you never, you never uh, remember. Matt, I feel like you just have to knight me one. Yeah, uh, and you're also one of the Veggie Tales. Yeah, okay, all right. Okay. I've got some. I've got that broccoli hair. Hey, I'm Matt Bernico. I'm on this podcast too. <laughs> and uh, let's see. I don't want to say I'm a professor anymore. I want to say I'm a member of the Power Team, and I'm coming to your hometown, and I'm going to rip a <laughs> phone book in half with the power of Christ. <laughs> wow, I really got shortchanged with the Veggie Tales, but that's okay. It's my own fault. Uh, you're the tomato, so if that makes it if that makes it any different for you, maybe <laughs> that short crabby tomato. <laughs> yeah cool hey well this week we've got a lot of cool stuff going on we're still riding out that evangelicalism wave um and we're going to be talking about a really neat book called to serve god and walmart the making of christian free enterprise that's by bethany morton but before we do we gotta just do all of our good housekeeping stuff we gotta clean this house right up um, it gets dirty so fast yeah that's right uh, so uh, first things first, uh, thanks for all of the good Patreon support we've been getting lately. It's been just wild um, and great and fantastic. So we thank you all for giving us a little bit of your cash. It's been awesome. Um, if you want to support us on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash the Magnificast and uh, you can support us there. Uh, yeah, cool. The different tiers get you access to a little bit different content. Right now, Dean and I are pretty busy, so the content is uh, a little on the thin side, I suppose. But that'll turn around soon, I think. Um, cool. If you can't do that, uh, you can always give us a review on iTunes. Go to iTunes, uh, search the Magnificast, give us a nice five five out of five stars. Tell us a little something about yourself, um, and uh, you know, just uh, just say something uplifting, empowering. You know. L- l- we don't need any more negativity in the world. That's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> I think you're right. Just the right kind of negativity, the right kinds of antagonisms. Towards people who deserve it, not us. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, Matt, I hear you've also been busy once again down in the old Reddit mines. <laughs> you heard right. I've been down there all day. <laughs> Spelunking. No, just kidding. I've not been down there all day. That would be so sad. Um, yeah, so I went, I went down the old Reddit mines. I checked out what's going on there. I I looked to see what Christians had, um, tough, just tough problems that they need our help with. So I found a good one and I'm here, Dean, to ask it to you. So I hope you're, I hope you're ready for this one. I'm ready. I've been studying all day. Okay. This is, um, it's a year old. So I hope this person is still okay. (laughs) Should have gotten this one sooner. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so this post is called Computer Games. Hmm. Don't you guys got sometimes feeling that playing computer games for 24-7 is kind of sin? I got a friend Mm -hmm. who give up on everything, family, school, and friends, because all he wants to do is play computer games. So, Dean, Mm -hmm. uh, this what do you think about this eloquently written post here? Is playing computer games for 24-7, is that kind of sin? I think it is kind of sin. 
Uh, last week, I set up the precedent that it's a sin if I uh, if I can't imagine Jesus doing it, and, hmm. and it is not a sin if I can't imagine Jesus doing it, and I can't imagine Jesus spending twenty four hours, seven days a week playing computer games. Okay, but okay, but here's the other test that we did come up with. Could you imagine Paul doing it? Jesus, maybe not, but Paul was historically the church's first gamer. Well, yeah, but he's also chief among sinners, so. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. That does make sense. Hmm. I can. Someone... It's like here's the thing. I can imagine yeah. Jesus going to a party of gamers, a party of sinners, if you will, all mm-hmm. playing games twenty four seven. And I can even imagine him like turning water into Mountain Dew for them, uh, just by his own good graces, or like you know multiplying Cheetos so that everybody gets enough. Uh, but I can't imagine him sitting down and partaking himself. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I do understand what you're saying. Um, hmm, because he would be amongst the sinners. No, I get that. Okay, someone else has said, I would argue from a Christian point of view, praying 24-7 is rather sinful as well, because it means you're not helping people. What do you think about that one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the thing is, I, I can't imagine Paul doing that, because he says you should pray without ceasing. Right, right. Which I think is 24-7. So I think this this person's got their wires crossed. Okay, let me throw you a a quick hypothetical, and you can tell me what you think, if this changes your opinion any. Um, So you're you're playing Fortnite. You're in your group of Fortnite friends. (laughs) (laughs) Your KD is through through the roof. Uh, I don't know if that's good or bad. I can never really remember. Your KD is exactly where it should be, um, I guess. Uh, And you are going to shoot people. Um, you're going to play the game, right? You're going to win because um, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. But while you're playing the game, you're also on that voice chat and you're just reading your favorite Bible verses. You're you're mm-hmm, proselytizing mm-hmm. to everyone else in the game. You're saying, you know, you're asking them, oh, how's your heart? Or, uh, you know, are you guarding your heart? Asking lots of questions about people's hearts, I think, is kind of the key mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. So uh, what if that's what you do? The thing is, if that's the case, then you're not playing a game 24-7, then that's work. You're going to work. (laughs) It's a completely different category. Yeah, right, right. That is true. Okay. Um, I think we nailed that one. I think it's good. I think we nailed it. Don't play video games 24-7. It is kind of sin. It is kind of sin. And if you do proselytize people on Fortnite, you should ask your pastor to pay you because it's work. Yeah. Or, you know, like play it, play it 27 and then just work the other four. That mm-hmm. should be fine. And on Sunday, rest from that. Play my you, the Sundays yeah. are for Minecraft because it's very relaxing. <laughs> yeah. 24 seven Minecraft on a Sunday. So I guess just 24 <laughs> one. That would be fine. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 You, you just be mining and uh, making swords and stuff, but not, I mean, killing monsters. Okay, cool. Well, we did it. We did that question, and now people <laughs> know the answer to it. We did it. Uh, I hope that helps you out. All right, let's turn to uh, some some actual things that might help you wrap your brain around evangelicals. It's tough, tough stuff to do. Uh, so we've tried to do a little bit of it for you. Uh, For the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about evangelicals and how they think and what makes them politically important and why Christian Marxists might have a thing or two to say about how some certain evangelical ways of thinking about politics uh, shape our world and and shape some some popular authors and activists and that sort of thing. This week, though, we decided to make uh, or to take kind of a weird angle on evangelicals and by looking at this book that Matt mentioned earlier called To Serve God in Walmart. Uh, the Making of Christian Free Enterprise by Bethany Morton. In the book, uh, Morton traces how evangelicalism and Walmart, the store, go hand in hand. And she reveals some really interesting links between the class interests of people like the Waltons and the history of conservative Christianity in particular. Uh, One of the most interesting themes that emerges is a story about the Waltons and Christianity, but also anti-communism. Uh, In the first episode, if you remember in this arc way back uh, a few weeks ago in evangelicalism, we mentioned that anti-communism was a really interesting piece of the uh, Netflix documentary The Family, but it kind of gets like underexplored, underdeveloped in that story. So the documentary tells the story of the rise of a strong kind of Christianity in the face of a a growing labor movement. So you don't want a Christianity that could be 
for the unwashed masses or, you know, all these people that the Marxists are trying to organize. Instead, you want a Christianity for the rich or something like that. Um, something really similar happens in this story, too, that Morton is telling. But in this story, we get, I think, some some more detailed, definitely more detailed insight into how anti-communism helps define evangelical identity, uh, especially. In fact, I think something that we're thinking about now is that maybe you can't tell the history of evangelicalism without the history of anti-communism, which is interesting for our purposes. Yeah, I think that's a pretty a big claim, but a thesis that is, I don't know, I think it's right. <laughs> um yeah, evangelicalism is a is a right wing reaction, I think, to uh, left wing currents in Christianity. Well, um, we'll get to more of that later, but we should also kind of set up the book by saying that it's uh, a window into like a weird Christian version of the Coke network, or something like that. Um, and when I say Coke, I mean like not not that good brown Coca Cola, of course not. <laughs> it's it's sinless, That's, I believe. That's sweet. <laughs> that sweet brown stuff that'll ruin your pennies. <laughs> That's right. No, we're talking about uh, the Koch family, the Koch brothers. Um, you might know that one of them died very recently. Um, if you don't know who the Kochs are, you might want to listen to the latest episode of Know Your Enemy, uh, the podcast with Matt Sitman and Sam Adler-Bell, where they talk about the Kochs and all of their spooky, dark money they use to try to build a libertarian <laughs> world. <laughs> yeah, basically, uh, I mean, the whole the whole idea is that this like family is extremely wealthy. Um, they made their money in some pretty, uh, well, okay, to put it lightly, we would say suspicious ways, but they like basically <laughs> sold stuff to the Nazis and to other people too. Um, uh, they built factories is what I'm trying to say. They built factories for the Nazis. It's not great. Um, anyways, yeah, they, but they, uh, the Koch family used their, like their, their dark money and their networks of power and influence to try to build like libertarian think tanks and influence culture overall. And the Waltons do something surprisingly similar. Maybe this is just a thing that rich people do. Uh, hashtag just rich people things. The Waltons <laughs> use their, their spooky money though, not to build a libertarian world, but to try to turn communists into Christians in some cases and fund Christian crusades against communism and others. They also use their money and their networks of influence to help prop up an evangelicalism that prizes a service oriented work ethic that provides them with, uh, with workers and business people. Um, I mean, the, the, uh, the subtitle of the book, the making of the Christian, the making of Christian free enterprise is exactly right. That's like the whole kind of idea is they're trying to create um, a political economy where, um, uh, you know, their goals can easily be obtained. (laughs) So um, overall, Walmart is a big part of that story of that, uh, that big capitalist evangelical resonance machine that we talked about a few weeks back. Um, It's a wild story. Definitely not the beginning of the story for sure. Right. Like there's a, there's a, a, maybe even an older history that we could kind of trace out and maybe we will in the future. But I think that this, um, the stuff here with Walmart is like, it's weird. It's a weird way in, but it's like, I think a pretty illustrative example (laughs) of the ways um, the idea of Christian free enterprise kind of like happens in the United States. Yeah, I think, too, just the fact that this is such a uh, a produced kind of thing is really interesting, right? Like, yeah. a lot of the time on this podcast, we trace kind of accidental histories or, I don't know, like, just stories of how things occurred um, sort of emergently out of history or, or society or whatever. But uh, one thing that always gets me really fascinated is, is when someone can tell a story that actually talks about how things get put together and, you know, how different pieces of... Uh, a way of looking at the world or a way of shaping the world kind of come into place and how most importantly, people try to reproduce that world through really specific means. So in this case, uh, the Waltons are trying to reproduce a world where people love Walmart, uh, but they love it for Christian reasons, (laughs) which is really wild and really bizarre. um, And just really, I think we owe it to Bethany Morton to have um, laid all this out. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the book. Um, by the way, I've uh, I've been reading it over the last few days. It's a fantastic book, and I highly recommend it. If you like weird histories, <laughs> this is the weirdest one. Um, man, I didn't know I could care so much about Walmart, and then I read this. <laughs> um, quick disclaimer, just letting you know, not I'm not just a, an innocent, uh, unpartial bystander here. I worked for Walmart for six months, and I gotta tell you, it's not great. <laughs> it's not a great place to work. Um, 
that's all I want to say about it. <laughs> Every, everything, everything this book says, uh, in my experience, was true. Okay, so Bethany Morton starts the book out just kind of like explaining like the weird phenomena that is Walmart. Um, man, I imagine if that you're, if you're not a person in the United States, this episode will probably be kind of weird. But Walmart is this huge, huge like cultural force. It's like a giant <laughs> store with everything you'd never ever want in it. But it's all there, just the same. Um, and can I uh, actually? Uh, maybe I can give an anecdote that illustrates how how bizarre Walmart is. Absolutely. Um, so I am from an extremely small rural town in Michigan, in northern Michigan, and there's nothing there. There's not not even a single thing. And there is, however, one Walmart. And when I was like a teenager, the thing to do if you didn't have any time or like if you didn't have anything to do and you wanted to hang out with your friends was to drive to Walmart and then you'd walk around Walmart and inevitably you would see other people who had driven to Walmart. It was like where people got together to hang out because it was open 24-7 and it was just a big place with lots of fluorescent lights. Uh, you know, it's that's Walmart. You know, it's crazy, though, is that I did this exact same thing in high school. <laughs> <laughs> that's wild. It's the great equalizer. Well, I mean, in rural communities, it's definitely like, okay, I mean, in rural communities, um, there's, a, there's a part in this book where it says, you know, a Walmart, a town of 5,000 can support a Walmart, which is right. crazy. Um, but it's interesting because like, you know, a Walmart moves into a town, into a rural community, and like, it will shut everything else down because, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, no one else can compete with Walmart because it's uh, a huge, um, you know, extremely managed and efficient organization. Um, and yeah, I mean, it replaces the town square, it replaces, you know, having like a even fast food restaurant in your town. Um, mm -hmm. cause you know, they'll, they'll put a subway in there, they put a McDonald's in there and it's all over for the rest of them. So it's just, <laughs> it's just such a weird thing that it, um, Walmart becomes this like huge occupying force in, in rural America. Um, there is a, there's even this interesting, uh, a quote that gets kind of echoed throughout the book that says, you know, if you want to find, oh, if you want to re if you want to reach evangelical Christians on a Sunday, well, you got to reach them in church, but if you want to reach them on a Saturday, you got to go to Walmart and boy, <laughs> is that too painfully true? Yeah. Extremely true. It sucks. Well, okay. So she starts the book off just kind of trying to <laughs> explain how wild this place is. Um, and I thought this was a good way that she does that. Walmart is the biggest company on the planet. Its sales on a single day top the gross domestic products of 36 sovereign nations. If it were the independent republic of Walmart, it would be China's sixth largest export market and its economy would rank 30th in the world, right behind Saudi Arabia's. And then the punchline. It's from a little town in the Ozark Mountains where you can't even buy beer. So um, the first part of uh, Bethany Morton's book here is trying to draw this paradox uh, about Walmart that on the one hand, it's this uh, it's, you know, this extremely sophisticated com company that uses, you know, all kinds of data to make its decisions. And it's always on the cutting edge of technology. But on the other hand, it's from like a place that, you know, that some might consider the backwoods, right? It's from Arkansas. It's from Missouri. It's in these, it's in the Ozark mountains. Um, it, it has all these other connotations that kind of come along with it that are really interesting. Um, so kind of riffing off this a little bit more, Bethany Morton says the paradox marveled one commentator in 2002 is that Walmart stands for both main street values and the efficiencies of huge corporations. Aw shucks, hokiness, and terabytes of minute-by-minute -minute sales data. Fried chicken luncheons at the Walton's Arkansas home and the demands of Wall Street. So um, Walmart is this wild cultural force and economic force in the world um, because it's where these two kind of things meet. Like the weird, the weird Christian culture of um, the Ozarks and also the, um, the uh, intense... Uh, striving for the accumulation of capital uh, that you might see on Wall Street. It's this, this two weird worlds merging into one. And, uh, well, the way that it got that way is also pretty weird and surprising. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, sort of in the history of Walmart, you have, um, you have a weird cultural shift that happens. And um, a lot of stuff with progressive politics, actually. I don't know. Dean, do you want to talk about that a little bit or should I? Yeah, no, I'm happy to. So the um, there's kind of two pieces of, of this book. One is a, a history of Walmart, 
um, and even a, a political history of it. And the other is a um, maybe like a thread that tries to figure out what Walmart means for us today or something like that. Yeah. And the history is really fascinating. So uh, like Matt was just saying, you know, it, it is kind of situated or it comes out of uh, this place that some people might look at as the the backwards piece of the United States or something. Um, but it gets even weirder. So uh, Morton says this, the megastore selected as its home, the most inhospitable part of the country for big business, the very same rural southwestern counties that since the 1880s had fought against large corporations and for increased government safeguards in the nation's economy. Uh, she's talking about Arkansas in particular. Not only were these populist strongholds hostile to the distant capitalists of Eastern industry and finance, they were also lousy customers. The early 20th century's department stores and theme parks were creatures of the city, and their paying customers the beneficiaries of industrial profits and union wages. Placed next to this urban cornucopia, small towns and their rural trade areas looked distinctly unpromising as the raw material of retail dominance. Uh, so that's kind of the, the backdrop, but she goes on to say the American periphery or what she calls throughout the book, Walmart country won the economic commanding heights in the second half of the century, precisely by creatively mobilizing its regional disadvantages, turning necessity to invention, hostility to triumph. So that's the, the brief kind of, uh, story that she tells, but there's lots of moving parts in between. Yeah. Tons of moving parts. So we're talking about like the 1880s. Um, and um, that, I guess, general time period. And, uh, you know, when you think about labor history and you think about um, radicalism in the United States and progressive politics, probably the last places that you're thinking of are Arkansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, or Kansas, or even Texas, right? Those places are not sort of at the forefront of your mind. But um, one of the sort of interesting histories here that Bethany Morton lays out is that um, those places exactly... Um, hosted some of the most, you know, uh, most vigorous popular protests that um, that were against, you know, huge economic corporations. Um, so she says that the strikes and rebellions of 1886 that posed the nation's greatest collective challenge to industrial capitalism spread out of Sedalia, Missouri, the future home of early Walmarts. So that there's this, uh, the kind of interesting part of this early story here is that, um, these sort of rural places that you might not expect to be a hotbed for radical politics actually had some surprisingly progressive currents at some points, at least. Um, and there, there was this sort of culture of, um, you know, big business was bad. It wasn't going to sort of do, it wasn't going to do what the people of Arkansas and the people of Missouri needed it to do because they were really poor. Um, plus like the sort of culture that those types of department stores would import were things that did not really appeal to the, I don't know, like the, the culture of people in Arkansas or in Missouri, <laughs> uh, the sort of like East Coast fashions and stuff. Um, those types of department stores didn't play well with those populations. Um, and kind of in response to this distrust of big business, um, there was this uh, political movement that's pretty noteworthy called the People's Party. Generally, the People's Party is just kind of like a, a sort of progressive left-wing, like, agrarian type of movement um, that happened in this area. So Bethany Morton writes, the People's Party National Platform of 1896 vigorously charged the federal government with restoring the republic's financial and industrial independence usurped by corporate monopolies. So that's kind of like, um, uh, that's sort of the, the line of the party, is that it's against these corporate monopolies. And it was definitely like a left-leaning organization. Um, the People's Party was interesting. It, it ended up being like a third party in the United States. They ran candidates, etc. Um, they had some some pretty surprising leftist ideas. Uh, they were pro-agrarian, you know, pro-farmer, anti-monopoly. Some of the more left currents of the party were advocates for cooperatives, and even Eugene V. Debs was a supporter. Um, so that's pretty noteworthy. Uh, it wasn't quite a socialist party, but it also wasn't not a socialist party for sure. Um, after its failure to win elections, though, most of the party dissolved, even though some people kind of kept the banner, uh, kept the banner waving, uh, but not in a really meaningful way. Um, but its constituencies either end up joining the Democrats or the Socialist Party. So it kind of spun out in those different directions. Uh, but the populism of the People's Party or like that general energy of the region in like the 1880s ends up being really important for the <laughs> really important for Walmart. 
<laughs> well, I, I hate it. I hate that that's true, but it's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, the, the populism of the People's Party gets transformed into, like, a desire for, um, desire for, like, the region to thrive, but only on their terms, right? They don't want big businesses in there, but they do want economic development in the region. They want, um, you know, farmers cooperatives. That's, like, a big idea. And um, Walmart ends up cashing in on that sort of legacy in some interesting ways. Yeah, so the the populist energy, like I said, it gets like rehabilitated into the into the desire for a local economic power that keeps larger corporations at bay. So it's kind of like a it, it was kind of like a, a moment of like um you know, a populism of the region and what it wanted was uh you know, like regional sovereignty or something um, in the sense that they didn't want the the sort of big corporations from the East coast uh, coming to dominate their, their spot. Um, yeah. This is what, this is how uh, Bethany Morton puts it. Despite the dominant antipathy towards corporations, the area that would become Walmart country was also familiar with arguments supporting modern large scale businesses. So long as they were operated by and for the farmers. The farm organizations that animated political debate in Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Missouri were friendly to new technologies of transportation and communication. Populist organizations justified demands upon the state to underwrite regional development and advocated keeping the money and local power. So there you have it. Um, there's, this, there's this type of populist energy. It's not anti-technology. It's not um, anti like corporations or anti-business it's sort of anti-capitalist in some ways but um if the money stays in the region then it's kind of chill it's it's fine so that's like an, an interesting undergirding um but then things get worse dean do you want to talk about how that populism just gets super racist <laughs> <laughs> yeah right uh so i guess this is maybe um the sad decline uh or the sad turnaround in some ways into why you don't think all those places are like hotbeds of progressive energy these days um so to kind of fill that piece of the story out um morton writes this the geographic idiom implied that in contrast to foreigners locals were christian old stock american whites it could therefore easily slide into racist scapegoating at the time, clannishness proved uncomfortably compatible with the anti-chain movement. Father's Char Father Charles Coughlin, he's a, a Catholic fascist priest, if you don't know who he is. Um, she describes him as the radio demagogue who made defenses of the local merchant a central theme in his Depression-era broadcasts, moved on to full-throated anti-Semitism after 1938. A congressional committee even heard sensational and unsubstantiated charges that the National Anti-Chain Store League disseminated Nazi propaganda. The wife of a small grocer wrote to the Louisiana anti-chain radio station KWKX, or KH, <laughs> that in her opinion, the future of independent industry was the most important question facing the Christian people of America. Uh, so, yeah, it's a really tragic tale of all of this uh, energy that's coalescing around people saying, you know, we, we want some kind of autonomy or a say in our, our own kind of communities, uh, that becomes a, a a huge, weird protectionist impulse uh, that coalesces not around cooperation or or any kind of semblance of, of class solidarity, but rather around, uh, you know, race and and being white and in particular being white Christians in that area. Uh, so the geography is important, but it's tied to these other kinds of identities uh, that even kind of override that initial claim. Uh, and that becomes basically the bedrock of Walmart's corporate culture and its philosophy, which I think is really wild. Like the thing that Morton connects here is, and she says this explicitly, the chain that would become Walmart Stores Incorporated arose out of the populist tradition of farmers cooperatives, which is like a sentence that if you told me completely outside of the study, I would never, ever believe it. I don't think I could understand it. Um, but the way that she ties it together makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. The... Um... The, the sort of political history of the region um, and how she kind of parses that out. It's like development and then how Walmart captures that energy in its culture is it's, it's wild. Um, it's wild and I hate it, but um, <laughs> it's a good example of the ways uh, capitalism can kind of absorb any ideology and make it into capitalism. <laughs> <Oof>. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. 
Yeah. Um, well, all of that. Uh, so the racist piece is important. The uh, protectionist piece is important. And the fact that Walmart is able to find its way or find its niche in these kind of rural communities is also very important. Um, but I think that, uh, I mean, especially for our purposes in this evangelicalism theme, uh, what becomes even weirder is that there are other kinds of like values or Christian values that are um, that play well to that crowd. Right. Like the the white protectionist crowd white supremacist Christian crowd. Um, There are other values that play to that crowd that Walmart then kind of like absorbs and repackages into its own managerial philosophy, essentially. Um, Matt, do you want to introduce us to that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So not only is Walmart sort of uh, their corporate philosophy about this like sort of captured populist white supremacist energy, it's also has this like it appropriates a a servant leadership kind of rhetoric from evangelicalism, and uh, I don't know if you've ever been in, if if you're not an evangelical yourself and you maybe you're, you're not super familiar with what that means. Um, well, it means that uh, it means that the work ethic here is that like uh, you know to be a servant is sort of like the best thing you can be. Um, that's that's the whole that's the whole thing. Um, but servant leadership, when it's used in Christian contexts, especially evangelical ones, um, usually is cashing in on a certain understanding of gender as well. That um, men can be servant leaders for sure, but uh, women are uh, servant leaders because it's sort of part of their uh, natural sort of way of being, right? As domestic workers, or that's what capitalism would have you believe. So Walmart, though, it uses uh, that type of rhetoric, servant leadership, to create a corporate culture that capitalizes on the domestic labor and emotional labor of women in those spaces. And it's um, a pretty important piece of the story as well. Um, So Bethany Morton says that uh, she's kind of citing uh, throughout the book. I mean, she ends up citing some very funny sources. And one of them is a a (laughs) publication that that Walmart puts out called Walmart World. (laughs) So uh, (laughs) got to get my subscription. Yeah, yeah, you got to get your subscription to Walmart World. Uh, So Bethany Morton writes in the company newsletter, Walmart World management exhortations sought to abstract and inculcate the rather pre-capitalist values that early employees brought into the corporation. So this is just basically what we've been saying, right? Walmart cap, uh, captures those, um, I mean, not necessarily pre-capitalist values, but the the values of the region, the sort of like uh, folk expressions of religion and so on, and they, and they bring them into the corporation. Um, so then... Uh, this is where the gendered aspect comes in, I guess. Um, this is another quote from uh, Morton. She says, the family imagery that transferred from rural heartland to Walmart chain stores in the 1970s thus brought with it a variety of meanings. Uh, natural adult male authority, mutuality, sociability, the subsistence of a risk. And since, um, since Walmart's early days, the same areas of the country that first welcomed Walmart have also uh, become you know, the champions of family values as the ruling metaphor for public life. Um, and uh, in the United States, at least family values is an ideograph that is a signal for, um, you know, heterosexual marriages, um, complementarian type of idea of, you know, men and women, that sort of thing. So um, Walmart took those ideas about family values and what it meant to be a servant and like sort of like the natural male authority, and um, it put women into the equation as workers. Um, And she goes on to say, adapting women's domestic labor into retail stores offered the new service workplace two distinct advantages. First, such labor was was widely undervalued um, and therefore cheap, right? Um, Women uh, still don't make as much as men, but especially didn't then. Um, And second, it incorporated customers themselves into service by way of their unpaid procurement of goods for families. Okay, so this part is a little bit, um, uh, this is a little bit mind bending. This is where um, Bethany Morton's book is like, uh, when it becomes this like, really different type of history of uh, Walmart. (laughs) It's it's not just a history of Walmart, but it's about like a history of the ways that like supermarkets worked in general. It's like this whole weird thing that I guess because I'm a millennial, I have no sort of access to and experience. But um, what what, um, Morton's saying here is that Okay, women are put in these situations um, of being, you know, um, servant leaders, it's a service workplace and so on. Um, but it's a department store that ha- is different than others at the time. 
because um okay in 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 an old okay imagine yourself in an old-timey department store (laughs) i am okay you're there uh so basically in the old-timey department store you'd walk up to a counter and you'd say hey i need a big barrel of cheetos and the person behind (laughs) there'd be a person behind the counter and they'd say of course one big barrel of cheetos coming right up (laughs) yes sir (laughs) of the finest cheetos for you and your family (laughs) so then they would go get the cheetos themselves and then they would bring them to you at the desk uh at the at the like sort of like i don't know kiosk or whatever it would be so walmart was different because instead of having like a bunch of different desks or whatever set up around the store you the 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 customers just go get the things themselves and like the the other like uh, predominantly female workforce is there to like help out if you need it or whatever and like i mean for us modern users of walmarts and department stores this seems like absurd because of course you go get the groceries yourself but uh for walmart this is a this was a big um innovation that they adopted from another supermarket chain called piggly wiggly which is <laughs> a good a good name but um a bad supermarket chain Yeah, I mean, that's a really wild uh, thing to note, though, right? That uh, she calls it a a form of unpaid labor, that customers themselves become part of this kind of weird, bizarre idea of service, you know, that you're kind of um, brought in to the the privilege of unpaid labor. Yeah, you're brought into the privilege of unpaid labor. um, And then the the employees on the other side are doing this other type of like, undervalued labor. There are all these kind of interesting like not quite ethnographic, but sort of ethnographic stories um, where uh, she'll she'll have interviewed um, women who worked at Walmart in like the 80s or the 70s or whatever. And um, they're talking about like how they would um, they would, you know, interact with their customers, especially like like um, in the in the ladies wear department, they would like always be like helping women find like clothes that suit them and all this kind of stuff. This like sort of like, um, well, that's, it's like women's work of, uh, of finding other women clothes and that kind of thing. Um, but like not really being paid to do that. They're just there as employees. So it's this, um, this way the job becomes like very, uh, gendered, but not like, um, not, not by the rules necessarily, but just because, um, of like the, you know, they're hiring women and that's sort of their workplace culture. It's this wild thing. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's crazy too, because you can really draw a pretty clear line, I think, between Christian ideas of gender and work in general and those kinds of practices. Um, and the more that I have thought about, uh, this, having read this book a little bit is, uh, like the more I've thought about that, the more I've also thought about friends of mine who still work in, uh, these kinds of stores. I had a friend who worked at Target who was telling me they had like a huge managerial change not too long ago where uh, they like fired all these people who kind of typically uh, manage the floor, I guess. Um, And what they were trying to encourage people to do was everyone was assigned to like one area of the store. So I don't know, maybe you're like electronics or your produce or whatever. And that was supposed to be your space. So you kind of are encouraged to take ownership of it. And that becomes like your spot. And it's such a a crazy kind of continuation of this um, in a certain sense, right? That you're kind of cashing in on these preconceived ideas that are not just capitalist, right? Capitalist individualism or something like that. Um, but there are also some some Christian seeds to them, uh, especially Christian capitalist seeds, right? Of like being proud of your own work and kind of um, being able to be judged by like your own specific labor and that sort of thing. Uh, and it's fascinating to kind of watch her piece this together so far back in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so here's another quote from Morton that kind of, uh, I think, establishes this point a little bit more thoroughly. Um, So this is at the very end of her section about service and gender. Um, So she says this, for when Walmart's hourly employees talked about their work, they did not automatically emphasize the elements that find ready parallels in manufacturing. Elements like surveillance, automation, anti-unionism, or supervisory authority. Rather, they stressed the one element of service work that distinguishes it from all others. The relationship between the service provider and the customer. They did not automatically claim the identity of worker or indeed of woman. Their own preference was for a different cultural tradition, that of Christian service. So um, kind of proving the point that uh, workers at Walmart, the ones that she interviewed, sort of historical things she read, they don't 
think of themselves even as you know workers in the same way someone that like in manufacturing where they think of themselves as you know christian servants uh and boy is that some bad ideology (laughs) yeah no kidding well, uh, this is all like some really wild stuff about kind of the internal Christian managerial side of Walmart. Um, but another turn that the book takes is to talk about Walmart and the Walton family and its ties to a really crazy, uh, a really fascinating kind of Christian uh, anti-communist political um, involvement. <laughs> it would be the polite way of saying it. Uh, pol- political intervention in global politics explicitly done in an anti-communist and pro-Christian way on the part of Walmart. Um, so if all of that is the the managerial or sort of inside the store side of things, uh, the other story she tells is what happens with the rest of that money and how do they influence um, culture. So uh, maybe we can just turn to that for the last uh, bit of the show here because I think it's really wild. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, I do, let me make one more quick point though, too. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to get to that too. That, that there's this like inside the man inside the store managerial aspect of like uh, the Christian free enterprise vibe, but um, but the Walton family does end up like um, affecting United States culture in a ton of other ways, especially when it comes to Christian higher ed. Um, they have right. they have you know like tendrils throughout the the Midwest and Christian higher ed institutions. So just want to throw that out there that there's like also this whole other aspect of it too that we can't even talk about, but like you gotta you gotta read this dang book. Okay. <laughs> well, that will come back actually because it's an important piece of oh, the right. political activity. Yeah. Yeah. Um so we'll get to that in a minute. Uh the the story that she tells is mostly like the seventies, eighties, and then the nineties. So the kind of height of the Cold War, but then the collapse of communism too. both of these are really defining for how the Waltons understand themselves in the world, understand their business and their faith. So here's a a really wild um, couple of paragraphs. So she writes this. The Washington consensus functioned as the hardware of economic restructuring in the Western hemisphere. At the same time, conservative Christians took up the cause of anti-communism in Central America with new fervor in the seventies and eighties. As the Reagan administration funded right-wing counterinsurgencies in El Salvador and Guatemala and sought to overturn the Sandinista victory in Nicaragua, it had no better stateside allies than religious conservatives. Hundreds of tons of material aid went directly to the Contra rebels from mainstream evangelical organizations like the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship, (laughs) Gospel Crusade, (laughs) uh, World Vision, and the National Association of Evangelicals. The Christian Broadcasting Network raised money for Guatemala's right-wing dictator, Uh, Even as he presided over the slaughter of tens of thousands of civilians, Christian student organizations like Campus Crusade for Christ energetically countered the growing opposition to Reagan's Central American policies. The White House Office of Public Diplomacy, staffed by psychological warfare efforts from the Army and the CIA, coordinated a multi-million dollar PR campaign to define the terms of public discussion on Central America policy. So this is the world in which the Waltons are thinking about what to do with their money. And here is where they come up with a uh, really fascinating, (laughs) really troubling innovation. Um, And this will bring in some of the higher ed piece. So she says, against this backdrop, uh, the intersecting lives of a Nicaraguan student, an Oklahoma journalist, and an Arkansas merchant sketch a web of relationships between people and institutions that shadowed the Washington consensus a private sector Bentonville consensus, a software of globalization. All those terms make more sense in the context of the book, but um, she's kind of drawing together like a, a um, homology between like these political Cold War ideas and uh, certain evangelical trends or in, in the development of Christian higher ed. So she says, through a Walton Family Foundation program, this human network bridged the transition from the last Cold War proxy battles to the new frontier of hemispheric free trade in the 1990s. It was not part of the coordinated Christian and neoconservative campaign of direct aid to anti-communists, but rather a parallel incubator of pro-market Christians. When the devastation of the 1980s ground down, taking with it 300,000 civilian lives at the hands of U.S.-backed regimes in Central America, the Bentonville consensus helped fill the vacuum. For the, grateful, for the grateful students involved, the scholarships offered a rare chance at economic security and broadened options for the entire, their entire families. For Walmart and its suppliers, the program yielded a network of bilingual, bicultural potential managers throughout Mexico and Central America, 
Just as the free trade agreements the companies had long sought were encouraging new outposts for American corporations after the Cold War. Uh, so this is really like <laughs> the the tying together of Walmart's desire to uh, not only take advantage of the, the sort of Christian culture in Arkansas and elsewhere in the United States, but to reproduce that Christian culture so that they could reproduce Walmarts in other parts of the world. Yeah, ex- exactly. Isn't that crazy? It's so wild that things like World Vision or Campus Crusade for Christ actually still exist. Um they're not gone. <laughs> they're not <laughs> gone. And you got to imagine it's that whole situation isn't over. Um, it's so wild because I don't know, you wonder why evangelicalism and Christianity has such a conservative bent to it. And it's because someone has spent a lot of money making it that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that yeah. should be obvious, but yeah, it's not for some reason. <laughs> I didn't think well, about it because it's book. <laughs> Yeah, it's cloaked in ideology, right? Like you think you think those things because you read the Bible. But in fact, you think those things because someone paid a lot of money to make people read the Bible that way. Yeah, yeah, totally. So Um, someone would just give us that much money, it could change (laughs) everything. That's right. That's right. We'll we'll do a complete rebrand here. (laughs) <laughs> well, we need lefty Waltons was what we need or uh, the, the angles is of Christian leftism. Yeah. In that, uh, in the episode of know your enemy where they talked about the Cokes, um, something, a common refrain in that episode is that like, man, the left should just really learn from these, these people. <laughs> the left should learn from these people with his, their dark money and influences of power and they should learn how to do this. And uh, I'm kind of convinced that's probably true. Yeah. It's good. We're all poor. Um <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, what else is crazy about this, though, is so what um, what Morton is trying to do is say, all right, so you have all these people like Campus Crusade, um, you know, the, the the evangelical business guys, all these folks um, getting together and like actively supplying material aid to like right wing death squads in Central America. She says, all right, Walmart isn't necessarily doing that. The Waltons aren't doing that. Instead, what they're doing is producing pro-market kinds of Christians. It's the sort of soft power approach uh, that happens after the United States starts to uh, come under some more scrutiny for for doing those kinds of things. Um, But don't be deceived. It's not because they're just kind of like, I don't know, innocent, naive uh, people who just want like Christians to work at their their company or whatever. The anti-communist thing is still a piece of it. Um, And it goes hand in hand with the Reagan administration. So she spells it out like this. She says, In 1985, President Reagan's uh, National Bipartisan Commission on Central America, better known as the Kissinger Commission, issued a report calling for private donors to fund closer educational ties to the region uh, in in Central America. Too many young Central Americans, it warned, were imbibing communism while studying in Cuba or the Soviet Union. Can you imagine? The first respondent to this challenge was the founding family of Walmart Stores, Inc., Sam and Hill and Walton, who established four-year scholarships to educate young Central Americans in free enterprise at a trio of Christian colleges in Walmart's home state of Arkansas, offering the following explanation. Um, So this is what they say. The purpose of the program is to expose students from Central America to the benefits of a society and an economy that flourish under a free, open, elected government. Reports show that several, several thousand Central Americans are studying on scholarships in communist bloc countries. Sam Walton commented, if we want future leaders of Central America to know the benefits of a free society, we need to get large numbers of the student generation up here to the United States. So it is a coordinated effort to uh, drive these um, uh, students and to find students, like actively recruit students, which they usually did through like church networks and that sort of thing, and bring them to the United States, uh, specifically to these three Christian colleges in Arkansas, um, in order to stop them from going to the Soviet Union or Cuba and suddenly discovering the joys of communism. Yikes. Um, yeah, again, it's not just like naturally happening. It's, it's, a, it's a concerted effort by very rich capitalists. Huh. It's wild, though, because it's like also uh, roping in Christian high red, right, who are, are willing partners in having new students for free enterprise uh, from other parts of the world. Right. Um, and it's wild. Like, <laughs> there are so many pieces here, right? There's a, 
conservative foreign policy agenda, right? Like they're actively being inspired by Reagan and Kissinger. There's a Christian high red piece of this that is is coming together. There's the uh, the whole point for them also materially is to be able to uh, train people who are capable of basically managing future WalMarts in Central America and Spanish speaking countries. Uh, so the capitalist interest is there. Uh, all of it is like tied in in this really, really bizarre kind of way. And, you know, something that's really damning about this whole thing. I mean, OK, it's all very damning. It's like it's all explicitly bad and icky and extremely gross. But something that I think is even I mean, maybe more fast fascinating is that um, that the Waltons themselves are not evangelicals. <laughs> that um, I, I guess that seems that seems interesting to me because. Um, you would think that if you were going to go through all of this, you know, if you're, if you're going to build a corporate culture that is, um, you know, based off of uh, a real, a real type of complementarian um, understanding of gender and you're going to go and, and you're going to use evangelical networks to recruit students to conservative Christian colleges, right? You think that at least you would probably believe in that type of thing. But what's even crazier <laughs> is that Sam Walton was a Presbyterian. <laughs> he was yeah. a, a mainline Protestant and who was he like they there's a part in the book that kind of describes his particular type of Christianity. And, and this is what it is. It's like the, the pastor, the pastor from his church was like, well, when it's not hunting season, Sam's in church. And like, that's it. And like, that's sort of like the <laughs> whole of his religious characteristics. And like. I guess what's so I, I mean, to me, I, I read that and like, I'm sure Sam Walton is a very conservative Christian or whatever, but it's wild that he's not like a part of the, you know, evangelical, like he's not a part of a, an explicit evangelical community outside of his business relationships. I think that's super interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I guess yeah. to, to me, it just like it sounds like a real big opiate of the masses kind of situation where like Sam, Sam Walton and Walmart corporation like they see this huge network this huge global network that's been set up by um i mean other powerful business people but also you know through the the soft power of churches in other countries and it's like well i guess that's a great way to get our work done uh <laughs> and it's it's so nihilistic and just just disgusting like what a what a terrible yeah. way to use religion against people to create a, a political economy that serves your ends specifically. Yeah, it's wild, too, because in so much of American imperialism, uh, it's just really obvious, uh, you know, supporting like this violent group, fighting that other violent group so that American interests could be represented in a particular place. But what's really fascinating about the Walton's case is they they perform imperialism in a different kind of way uh, where they're not like trying to get blood on their hands or anything. They're trying to export evangelicalism so that they can export Walmart in this really weird, weird sense. Um, and the Presbyterianism isn't completely left behind, uh, but that makes it even weirder. So just to add another piece of the puzzle here, uh, Morton says this. Um, she's talking about the three different colleges that I mentioned earlier. I forget all their names, but it's not important right now. Um, she says this. Into these three distinct traditions of American Protestantism, which she says are frontier Presbyterianism, non-denominational evangelicalism, and hard-right fundamentalism. Those are the three traditions that these colleges come out of. The Waltons brought young people from what Reagan's ambassador, Gene Kilpatrick, had recently proclaimed the most important place in the world. In the small towns of the Arkansas Ozarks, the Walmart family began to offer these students undergraduate degrees in business, marketing, and communications, the better to combat communism and build free market democracies. As Sam Walton put it, the Arkansas schools recommended themselves because we thought we could stay close to them. We know what they teach and how they think. 60 new students a year at each Christian campus, majoring primarily in business-related subjects, found themselves defining a new category of the globalized, a transient white-collar class conversant with Protestant evangelicalism and service sector office culture employed by U.S.-based multinational corporations. Moreover, their presence in the Ozarks presaged the region's own growing awareness of its hemispheric context, 
drawn by jobs in construction and chicken processing, pushed by the calamitous effect of repression and economic restructuring in their home countries, a steady stream of Mexican and Central American newcomers poured into northwest Arkansas in the 1990s. Two peripheries met along paths worn by war, work, and worship. Nope. No, I don't like this, Dean. This is not the good news. <laughs> it's the bad news. The the nega gospel. <laughs> yeah, it is. So, okay, we're kind of we're getting close to an hour here. Um, I think there's a lot of big ideas that we can draw out here, and we've said them. You know, we said a few of them, right? That uh, evangelicalism and its conservatism doesn't happen by accident, right? It's a thing that's created by big businesses to produce the types of cultural context that they can thrive in, and that is really important. Um, it's also important to note kind of the ways that evangelicalism is used pretty technologically here to funnel uh, folks from Central America um, and, uh, you know, bring them to Christian universities and colleges and, uh, you know, turn them into business people. It, it's just such a crazy story because, I don't know, it, it takes things... <laughs> It just takes things like, I mean, I guess it's it's upsetting for me particularly as a person who teaches at a Christian university who I don't think has any money or relationship to Walmart. But then again, what do I know? Um, it you know, it takes something that, you know, could could be could be not so bad. Right. Like Christian education isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world, but it does transform it into something that is necessarily terrible. And uh, I don't know. Shame on those Christians. Shame on us for letting it happen. I don't know. It's bad. Yeah, well, and especially like in the context of the 90s, um, I think it's important too to just add the political economy piece here, right? That yeah. uh, what the Waltons are doing is they're preying on people who feel economically disadvantaged, who are economically disadvantaged because of free trade agreements coming after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yep. So they're taking those people, bringing them to the United States, turning them into a weird evangelical kind of bourgeois class that is... Uh, for all intents and purposes, essentially an agent of American imperialism encouraged to return back to their home countries and uh, continue the work there. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a really, really horrifying way of uh, cynically using Christianity in order to accomplish American imperialism. Man, putting it in terms of political economy is so much more depressing and insidious, I think, too, right? Like, like um, okay, for example, the response to NAFTA by... Um, some people who were disenfranchised in Mexico and Chiapas, right, led to the Zapatistas, <laughs> right, like, um, a community that that worked on um, creating a, a sort of self-sufficient community for indigenous people in the southern part of Mexico. Okay, that's one response. The second response is like um, the imperialist response is trying to uh, funnel people uh, from Central and Latin America into the United States and reproduce capitalism, right? It's like this weird anti- Zapatista movement, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's the, the, the nega Zapatistas. It's, it's like the, I mean, uh, you could just call it imperialism or the reinforcing, the reinforcing of like United States empire or however we want to parse that out, I guess, explicitly. But um, I don't know. It's interesting to see how, I, I mean, think about it in those political economy terms. It's good. Yeah. Well, I think um, if we kind of double back to like why this is important in the context of the other, conversations we've had so far uh it's not just because like this is a weird book that we found um although it is that for sure uh it's also like evangelicalism is certainly a way that influences how people think but it is a material force in the world yep. that uh makes sense in capitalist economies uh in fact in latin america for instance uh, lots of liberation theologians are often uh, complaining about how like the United States is exporting all these evangelicals and they can't activate the kind of revolutionary rhetoric that they were able to activate in the 60s and 70s. Um, it just doesn't land on evangelicals, right? They're, they're too ready to be <laughs> employees at Walmart uh, and not ready to be uh, resisting uh, U.S. imperialism. And I think it's important, especially for Christians in the U.S. Um, and, and elsewhere, but especially in the U.S., just to be giving thought to what, you know, whether you're an evangelical or not, like giving thought to how that particular kind of Christianity licenses, perpetuates, and even prepares the ground for American capitalism around the world. I think it's a good final note. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, I mean, you don't, right? This one, you don't like what you heard. It's a lot of bad news. 
But you but, like that we had to read it and you didn't. That's okay. If you like that part of it, you can support us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash the Magnificast. We promise that we're not using any of that money to uh, spread <laughs> imperialistic forms of Christianity around the world. We're just using it to do something different. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> cool. If you can't do that, that's totally chill. Um, you can go on iTunes and give us a review, and that would be very nice as well. Um, those reviews, also not imperialistic. Um, cool. Yeah, uh, our intro music is by Amaria Armstrong, and our outro music is, as always, by The Illogical Spoon. And uh, we'll see you next week with some more of this uh, this wild evangelical history. Get up at church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, where you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late.